So recently, headlines have been coming fast and furious regarding the heat waves throughout the world, and more specifically, the southern United States. Temperatures have been hitting crazy highs, such as triple digits, for multiple weeks in a row in places like Phoenix. There was a recent podcast episode on The Daily where they actually interviewed a gentleman who is now in charge of heat preparedness in the city of Phoenix uh, within the government. So clearly this has been identified as an issue. These dangerous levels of heat have led to increased rates of heat illness and significant amounts of deaths, especially in elderly people. It's frankly another story of climate affecting our health. Julie, we recently did that episode on air quality and now we're doing another one. What goes through your mind when you hear all these recent stories? A lot of things. Well, one, bringing up that that guy's in charge of heat in Phoenix. Can we just pay him to like bring the heat down? Just, yo, guy, just turn it down. And then a lot of people be a lot more comfortable. Put a dome over Phoenix and turn on the air conditioning. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Uh, It reminds me of, um, you know, we're in Chicago. Do you you remember the 1995 heat wave? It was five days of extreme heat and like 739 people died because yeah. they from heat related illnesses so that that's it can be very scary and, and deadly and and I know that it's it's been a little while since 1995 but I don't know if that much has changed but yeah I was I was reading the uh, Washington Post article that was sent to me about how this is this week 250 million people are set to experience uh, heat it, like heat indexes above 90 degrees and I was like that's that's too many people <laughs> it's, it's like the hottest July of all time so this is very topical, Jeremy. I'm, I'm very I'm very glad you brought up this topic. Yeah, I think we're all used to seeing warnings on our phone in terms of weather and such. And even going back to our air quality, when we're all used to every once in a while, like the air quality is bad. We're like, we didn't have to do anything. But now I, I think the warnings both being there for extended amounts of time and also it's saying don't absolutely don't do something has led to many people saying, I don't actually know what I'm supposed to do, which is why we're here. We're going to answer the questions. So today we have invited another doctor friend and an expert in sports medicine to discuss heat and how it affects our health. You will learn what is heat illness? Why does it happen? Who's at risk? And ultimately, what should you do if you find yourself in a place with a dangerous heat warning? So Julie, are you ready to turn up the heat in here? Oh gosh, I sure am, Jeremy. And I'm so excited for our guests. So yeah, it's getting hot in her. Welcome to Your Doctor Friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen, and we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions, and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. Welcome back to Your Doctor Friends. It's my pleasure to introduce to you our expert today who is not only a renowned sports medicine physician, but also our colleague and friend, Dr. Josh Blomgren. Josh is a graduate of the Chicago College of Osteopathic Medicine at Midwestern University. He completed a family practice residency at Resurrection Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois. Following his residency, he did a fellowship in primary care sports medicine at Rush, and he is the chief medical officer for Chicago Red Stars Soccer Club, as well as a team physician for the Brook High School. Pertinent to today's topic, Josh has volunteered annually at the Chicago Marathon, overseeing the medical tents that are responsible for over 40,000 runners each year, and a small but very busy percentage of which will experience heat illness and require medical attention. So our topic is heat illness, and Josh treats a lot of it. So Josh, welcome to the pod. Hey guys, happy to be here. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I thought you guys would introduce me as the hot doctor friend, but 
hey, let's let's get going. Oh, shoot, there was a typo in there. We already know what we call you at work, Josh, or at least what I call you. This is Zaddy Blomgren. Yes. We're, this is very fun for us. We we, yes. we get to have a lot of great people on the podcast, but to have you know somebody that is someone we work closely with, frankly, has been a, a, an absolute mentor for both of us, yeah. uh, is very exciting. And uh, honestly, heat illness is one of the first topics that we cover when our new fellow comes in because the marathon comes up pretty quickly after that. And so it just, it was so easy to see all these headlines of heat illness going on and to say, Josh, come on and teach everybody what we teach the fellow every single year. So let's start just really basic. Let's start with an orientation to heat illness. We all know what it feels like to go outside and be miserable and be outside in the really hot air, but I'm not sure everybody knows what defines heat illness. What's the difference between being really uncomfortable and actually having an illness? So can you run us through what heat illness actually is? Yeah, you know, it, it, it falls on a, on a spectrum that, that obviously starts with, you know, just being warm. Sometimes can people can develop heat cramps um, and then kind of gets into heat exhaustion, which is where your core body temperature starts to rise. And then that spectrum continues to exertional heat stroke, which is a, a true medical emergency. It's when the, the core body temperature is, is greater than 104 degrees. And talk about kind of the symptoms throughout that. So start with cramps maybe and explain kind of what people would feel and then maybe work your way through kind of like what the signs and symptoms of those would be. Yeah, you know, I think probably at some point, most people have experienced a, a, an isolated muscle cramp. And so, you know, a, a tightening of the muscle or a spasm of the muscle will the heat cramps. It's kind of significant. It spreads around the, the, the body and it's mainly, mainly affecting large muscle groups. And so it's going to be, you know, legs and arms. And, you know, I think of you know, our marathoners, it's, it's primarily going to hit their legs to start, but I have seen instances where it's kind of full body and, uh, you know, the, the origins kind of lie in dehydration, muscle fatigue, and then as we sweat, uh, we lose some salt content from our body and all of those things kind of contribute to these, these spreading muscular cramps or convulsions. And Josh, I know we'll probably get into the treatment for heat-related illness um, in more detail, but I feel like one thing that I see sometimes when we've done sideline coverage and someone's having like a heat cramp, our our knee-jerk reaction, no pun intended, is to like stretch them out. Like, do you feel like stretching out a heat cramp really helps, or is it like, no, you just need to not be so hot? <laughs> what do you think? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, the muscles obviously going into to a big tight spasm and what sure. have you. And so, you know, getting that to loosen up and, you know, I do a lot of soccer coverage and it's, it's very, very common for soccer players late in the game to develop these, these cramps. And, you know, you'll see the first thing that, that the teammates do is they grab their legs and put a stretch on them, but it's, you know, that's part of it, but kind of addressing the underlying issue with, you know, whether it's the salt loss or did the dehydration. And it's a little hard to increase somebody's fluid acutely or rapidly. 
I think if we'd had the ability to maybe survey the audience listening right now about what the first symptom we, we would have talked about if heat illness was be, I think cramp probably would not have been the first guess of most people. I think people know what a cramp is, but I don't think along the spectrum of watching the news and people having all these heat problems and potentially dying, I don't think many people would have thought cramp. So I think it's an interesting point and something that, um, you know, if you start to notice somebody is having muscular cramps, that that could be an early sign that they are struggling in the heat and that you probably should be taking some action. Am I accurate when I say that? Yeah, you know, and, and I mean, we're talking probably, you know, more realistically about, um, you know, people that are exercising in the heat, you know, uh, the marathoners that I see or uh, we're weeks away from the start of, of high school sports here in Illinois. And so many of these programs are going to be outdoor based. Um, they're going to start in you know, beginning middle of August where it's, where it's bound to be hot, even potentially early in the morning. And so, um, you know, I think for the, for the average person, if they're just spending time outside, they're probably not going to be moving enough to, to kind of get into the heat cramps, but in the, in the world of athletes and heat illness, that's often what we see first the average person that's out and about spending time in the heat, they're probably going to get into kind of this, what we call heat syncope, where people are feeling a little bit dizzy, a little bit lightheaded as a result of the heat. Um, and so we may bypass cramps and, and just kind of get into this lightheaded dizziness. You know, I maybe would think of, um, you know, we have a lot of music festivals here in Chicago. And so these, you know, people that are spending all day listening to music, they're potentially out in the sun, exposed to not only the the, the heat of the air, but the, the radiant heat coming from the sun, you know, I, I would see them probably not cramp up, but, but get dizzy, lightheaded, et cetera. And if you're going to the same music festivals that I am, maybe the heat of the mosh pit. <laughs> I mean, you the might, you might get some cramps moshing around. Yeah. <laughs> There's a band called the cramps too. We were just listening to that. It's very meta. <laughs> Julie hasn't transitioned to the daytime child youth singers that I get to go spend my days with, <laughs> Sorry, Jeremy. with, with, with without the mosh pits. Um, one, of, one of the things I kind of wrote down here was the difference between symptoms and signs. And what I mean by that is, is you've done a really nice job of describing the person may feel dizzy. They may feel lightheaded. They may feel like they're going to pass out. So as the person who maybe, how do I look out for symptoms for myself? Those are things I'd be looking for. If I was somebody maybe hanging out with that person, or I was walking around with a family member and I was like, what do I look for to say I'm concerned about them? How would that appear to me? Yeah. I mean, they, they may, you know, they may start to look fatigued or act a little bit drowsy. Um, they may complain of headache, um, cramping, as we've already talked about. They, you know, they may just feel kind of tight and, 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 and bound up. And then, you know, sometimes we'll see, even though it's a, a heat illness, the body is trying to, trying to disperse this heat. And so you'll actually sometimes see people get chills. Hmm. Um, as a, as a kind of a paradoxical reaction to the heat, um, you know, people may see somebody profusely sweating. Um, they may get kind of red and flushed. Um, and then they may, you know, as we progress and get further along in the spectrum, they may start to get mentally altered. Um, and, and so that's, that's, you know, maybe the point that people, take notice and get concerned when they're like, you know, so-and-so is not acting right. Would that change 
by age? Am I, are, are the kids going to act different than the adults? And are the elderly going to act different than the adults in signs and symptoms? Or is it all pretty similar? No, I mean, it's all it's it's all going to be a little bit similar. But uh, at the extremes of age, the the young and then the old, they don't they don't do a, a, as good a job regulating body temperature, their body doesn't doesn't self regulate. And so you may, you know, you may see a, a bit of a rapid progression, or they, there may not be that same sweat response to the to the heat that you're going to see in in the non extremes of age, if you will. And I guess as long as we're on age, maybe we should actually just dive right into that. Like, it seems like one of the things that's being pointed out in all the headlines and the things that you're reading and hearing everywhere is like, especially old people need to like, really be careful. Um, and maybe can you talk a little bit like, why are older people more at risk? Yeah, you know, I think it's I think it's the, you know, older people are a little bit uh, more at risk for a, a bunch of different reasons. They may, you know, the extremes of age is when we see other health problems, um, that that may you know they may be on a medicine that that predisposes them. They may have a health condition um, that that also puts them at risk. Um, they probably are higher likelihood to be both poorly conditioned to being in the heat and poorly acclimated to it. If they're not, you know, they, one of the risk factors in those who exercise in the heat is somebody that's poorly conditioned that can put them put them at risk, and then. You know, if people are on medicines that dehydrate them, dehydration is a is a predisposing factor. And so, if somebody's on a medicine um, that does it, and then as we've already talked about the the extremes of age, the the very old, the very young, they don't do as good a job of regulating their own body temperature. Yeah, and if they're anything like my grandma was, they're already wearing fifteen sweaters, so perhaps their ability to dissipate heat <laughs> at baseline <laughs> because of just insulation, maybe impairing that a bit. Acclimation is a really interesting word, Josh. So just, I want to use an example when you say that, because maybe to give reference it. So, you know, like acclimation as in like you would be training to be in the heat. So maybe if I'm somebody who lives in a warmer climate, maybe I live in Phoenix, it's still hot, but like I'm also there all the time. And so maybe I've adapted a little bit more. But so if I'm somebody who lives in Minnesota and then I take my vacation to Phoenix and it's 120 degrees, am I going to be at higher risk than the person who's been there for a while, assuming we have everything else the same age and risk factors? Yeah, I mean, I think our bodies are our bodies are really good at, at adapting to our environment. Obviously, that takes a little bit of time. And so getting used to being out in the heat or just being in the heat is probably going to take our body a little bit of time to, to figure out the best way to self-regulate. And if you look at you know, a lot of the sporting guidelines when it comes to starting a sport in the heat, there's, there's a, a, you know, often a one or a two week period where there's guidelines on getting people used to the heat. Um, you know, I think about our football players that are, you know, in what, what amounts to hot equipment. Um, you know, they jump right in, they're starting their practices, they're two a days. Um, you know, they're at a higher risk for heat illness, especially if they've not spent a ton of time in the, in the summer doing it. And so there's some guidelines to kind of build into it where, you know, some, some states or governing bodies have put limits on the amount of time initially and they build up and then they build up and add more and more equipment as, as the first week or two of practice goes on so that they can, they can get acclimated. And I think, some of the some of the teams and programs have done a, a good job of 
kind of positioning their camps in the summer to kind of coincide with the heat so they can kind of build in that acclimation process ahead of time as well. So it's akin to like my grandma Midge just putting on one sweater at a time and then doing some exercise and then putting on another sweater. I mean, potentially, yeah. I mean, I would probably argue that, uh, you know, the best way to avoid heat illness is to, uh, you know, use use the, uh, garments that are going to wick the sweat away from us and maybe not insulate us so much. Yeah, no sweaters, Midge. <laughs> I just wanted you all to know their name was Midge because I thought you'd find that adorable. Yeah. I, I think about the person who has the golf trip. That's set up. And I, yeah. I don't necessarily feel cool. like many people in maybe the Chicagoland area as an example should be taking trips to Phoenix to golf right now. That tends to be more of a, a get out of the winter type of thing. But it, just in the situation where somebody was and you didn't cancel it, despite the heat being bad and being warned, just like the warning of like, maybe you shouldn't be doing a lot of golfing the first couple of days. You should be trying to acclimate and then gradually getting yourself up before you start doing a lot. That's just the example that's popped into my head. No, I think it's a great example because... You know, I mean, I think of people that I've that I've treated for injuries before golf trips. They've, you know, maybe planned for months. They have a, you know, they might be playing at a course that's really, really desirable. And they, you know, they've got a specific time. They've got a specific plan. And then they get out there and then, the, you know, you, you open that front door to go to your round and the, the heat just smacks you in the face. And you're, you know, maybe wrestling with, do I go give it, you know, go try, give this a go and get my round in that I've been waiting for for so long? Or do I call it and just say it's too risky? I, I mean, I think that, um, a lot, I mean, you can take any scenario where a trip is included and you've got plans and, and things like that, where you maybe, maybe are questioning whether or not it's a good idea. So I think Maybe one of the the question the burning questions that was a good pun actually now that I think about it yeah, good uh, job. The, yeah good job, the, one of the burning uh. questions is like how how hot is too hot like should I just be looking at my phone and waiting to get a warning from you know my weather app or is there a certain number or should I just look at temperature like where how how do we know yeah I mean it, it, so when we talk about temperature we're talking about like a heat index and. There is a, uh, you know, there's a, a device that gets used across marathons. Um, the professional soccer leagues take two measurements every game to find out if there's a, a need for a water break. Um, and uh, the, uh, and I know you love this, Julie, but it's the wet bulb globe temperature. And, you know, it's... <laughs> It's, it's just uh, a weird it, it's group a, of words together that not a lot of people hear. It's wet bulb globe yeah. temperature. Well, and so so it takes into um, you know it takes into consideration all the factors that that we account for for heat. So the the wet bulb part of it accounts for humidity. There's a typically a black sphere that accounts for solar radiation. And then there's the ambient air temperature, and then some of them have little fans on them that'll take into account the wind speed. And when we're calculating the absolute heat and kind of that that real feel temperature, that's what the wet bulb globe temperature um, temperature reads. And so when you are watching the you know watching the news and they rattle off a heat index. I would. I, I don't think that most people are going out with this wet bulb globe temperature device and, and taking it, but they are using a calculation that tells us, you know, what the what the real feel or the heat index is based on the outside temperature and the relative humidity. 
Um, and so just to, you know, just to give you an example, if, if the, the outside temperature is 90 degrees, that's about what it's been here in Chicago. But as you start approaching 70% humidity, the, the real feel or the heat index is 106 degrees. And so you can maybe look at your therm, you look at your thermometer and you're like, oh, it's only 90 degrees, but then you go out, the air is thick and, and hot. And so, you know, the, the humidity plays a big role because we, we, rely on sweat and the evaporation of that sweat to cool us down and when the humidity is high enough we don't we don't achieve that evaporative cooling um you know as as good and kind of you know that that evaporative phenomenon we've all had a drink in the summer that's that's cold and you take it outside and it starts to get that sweat on the outside that's that you know that's that's kind of the phenomenon Right. So if the, if the humidity outside, if there's not a, enough of a gradient between the, the water on your skin and the, the amount of water in the air, there's, it's not, it's not going to leave your skin as easy. And so that way you're just going to stay hot like Midge with her sweaters. That's right. That's right. Wet sweaters. I said I would stop and I can't. I feel like there's a sweater joke in there, you know, Midge is a sweater, and she's wearing a yes. sweater. sweater. Sure, yeah, it's all very cute. <laughs> when we did the air quality episode, we went to airnow.gov, and that had a score, and then that score associated with certain risk. When you talk yeah. about this temperature, this heat index, is there certain ranges that are more dangerous and we should follow that same concept, or is it super individualized? And so at that point, you're just trying to say, like, how hot is it, and what are my risk factors? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, there's the, the, most of the guidelines that I've seen it, it, you know, you're, you're at relative low risk when the heat index is less than 75 degrees. Um, it goes a little bit higher between 75 and 80, 80 to 85 is a little bit higher risk. And then, and then higher than 85 is probably when you're at your highest risk. And the American Academy of Pediatrics has, some guidelines with regards to sports participation um, and they use 85 degrees. Um, You know, most of the soccer organizations will follow some of the guidelines put out by us soccer and they use a, a wet bulb temperature reading of 82 to determine if there's a water break during the game. And so if it's, if it's higher than 82, there's a stoppage halfway through the, the first and the second half and the players are given an opportunity to get an additional water break and, most of the teams will have ice towels that they can kind of use to cool off. And, and so, you know, you add in those two water breaks and it's an extra opportunity to hydrate. And then, you know, you get three opportunities to kind of cool these people down between these two water breaks and halftime. And so, um, you know, and soccer, soccer is a unique example because there are, you know, there's not timeouts built in and, um, you know, it's a running clock. And so there's not as many natural stoppages. So they, um, identified a problem and then came up with a solution to, to be able to make that work and lower the risk to those players. Josh, I know you've been covering the Chicago marathon, um, either in the medical tent or on the site or like the, the, the main tent and then the, the race tents. Were you, were you present to the one in 07 where they had to halt the race after a bit? Cause the, so- the heat was oppressive. That was my inaugural marathon. I was still, I was still in, tra- I was still in so training, and 
you know, when you're interested in sports medicine, uh, you go and cover the marathon. And so um, I, I, I don't know how to describe it. Um, it. It felt like a battlefield hospital. And, and I'm sure I'm, I'm sure I'm not doing a battlefield hospital justice. But I mean, we literally had just a flow of people in and out, in and out all day. And then you know, somebody would come running in with somebody in a wheelchair and then we'd, you know, grab them, throw them on the cot, try and figure out what was going on, identify they were too hot, throw them in the ice bath. And, and, uh, you know, I've, that, I mean, that was, that was kind of my trial by fire, if you will. And then, um, I've done it, I've done it other years where, you know, it's maybe not been as hot where they canceled it, but we've still ended up putting people in ice baths and, you know, even in a, kind of a moderate event. I, there was, there was one of the shamrock shuffles, which is typically in March every year. Mm. It was, you know, that the temperature was in the low seventies, but the humidity was pretty high. And I had a couple of people, even at that, you know, at that temperature get too hot. So um, it doesn't necessarily take this big, big heat for somebody exercising, but obviously we've talked about the, you know, the baseline temperature in, in Phoenix or, you know, Europe's on the news for all these high temperatures and, you know, they're, you know, generally telling people just to stay inside. For the record that year, the temperature was 89 degrees <laughs> for the marathon. Yeah. I've, I've gone back and looked at the weather that day and the heat index was between like 88 and 92 degrees, um, depending upon what, what time of day you looked at it. It's, I, I mean, absolutely... Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I think it's set a, set a standard for how, how heat at these major events gets handled to be perfectly honest. I think you've done a nice job there kind of highlighting, you know, the different scenarios or situations that can have different types of risk that, that that's one thing when, you know, grandma Midge is old and takes multiple medications and we are not going to take her out in 110 degree heat. And frankly, she probably doesn't even want to be out there versus, you know, like the 35 year old or frankly the 14 year old who feels healthy says, eh, it's just heat. I'll just do what I need to do. Or I get, you know, I have a big pickleball match or, you know, it's the kid's soccer and we traveled all the way here and we have hotel rooms and we need to do this. And so, you know, our bodies exercising are not going to be able to do as well with heat and those numbers change a lot. And so I'd love to have you comment one more time on kind of how our body adapts to heat with exercise and how maybe those numbers that don't sound that hot when you say it affect a marathon differently than, you know, like us just walking outside. Yeah. 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 So, you know, obviously our, um, you know, our bodies can, can heat up, um, with exercise, it kind of highlighted a point where the temperature wasn't so, you know, wasn't so high. And so our, our working bottles, our, our muscles working, get converted to heat. And that's largely influenced by what the external temperature is. Our body's going to try and regulate it. But when it either can't because of some internal things or, um, or because of some external things, that's where we, you know, we start to sweat. We we get rid of heat when we breathe. And so our respiratory rate's going to go a little bit higher. Um, the, we've already talked about how humidity can influence sweating. And then, you know, the, then our body is giving off heat um, as well. So kind of a radiance um, or convection, if we're, you know, touching something, our, our body's going to conduct heat to that if it's, if it's cooler. And so those are all the different ways that our, that our, that our body, both generates and gets rid of heat. 
All right. So we've talked about symptoms. We've talked about what we would see. Um, you know, I, I, I think we, a natural transition point maybe to be like, what do we do? So yeah, we starting to notice somebody, either myself, like I'm starting to feel dizzy or lightheaded. Let's just start with maybe more like the mild symptoms. I'm starting to feel dizzy or lightheaded. I'm kind of not feeling right. Or I notice, you know, a friend of mine, similar symptoms. Like what would you recommend at that point? Yeah. So if, you know, if you're, if you're out, uh, exercising the group, you're out at, uh, you know, a concert and you're in the mosh pit and somebody starts to, uh, to look not so great, you know, the, you know, you generally want to look to try and cool them, um, getting them out of the sun. So there's that, that removal from that, that radiant source of heat and then looking to cool them down, whether it's cold water, um, ice packs, um, getting some fans, getting some air moving across, especially if you can, you know, if they are still sweating, just that air movement um, in a in a cool environment can can help to cool them down. You know, a, a general rule of thumb is to is to you know use ice packs on points of major arteries. So we have um, you know a great area in our axilla, our armpit. Uh, to, to kind of pack some heat in there. We've got big, big arteries taken, taking blood to and from our legs right in, right on the front of our hip. And so kind of packing ice in there um, along these major arteries and then an ice towel kind of, kind of draped over, over them to help with that kind of big level cooling, um, you know, is, is generally what is recommended. And, and when somebody has, a heat illness or they're getting into that emergency situation, generally the, 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 everything that we're taught to do is to cool their core temperature down as quickly as possible. And so it, a lot of it depends on the resources that you have available. Um, and so if, you know, if you have the access to submerge them in cold or icy water, that is the best and fastest way. So they can go over to Jeremy's house and jump into his cold plunge my cold tub. Plunge, yeah, yeah. They, uh, yeah, they I mean, do. That's that's a that's a that's a that's probably a whole other podcast. But uh, um, it was, you know, yeah. Plunging plunging in the ice bath has yeah. uh, you know is is the best way to cool it down. Um, you know, they've looked at a lot of different ways to to do it, and if you are looking at somebody who has an elevated core temperature, say of 108 degrees, which I've seen at a marathon, um, it is really, that is really, really hot. It takes about nine minutes in an ice bath to cool them down to 102 degrees. And usually we stop, you know, we don't want to get them cooled down so much that they then become, become, become hypothermic. But, um, we, we typically cool people down to about a hundred degree, 101 degrees so that there's time for them to drop a little bit more into a normal range. And that's about 10 minutes. You do these other method methods where you're packing the ice and sometimes it can take two or three times that long. It would seem to me for like the more milder symptoms, maybe like the early onset of this, not an athlete, people are out with friends or whatever that your, your recommendations are just get cool. So if I can go inside and find air conditioning and, and, or put on yep. some ice or whatever is just to get cool. And, and, and you're probably, you probably don't need to jump in an ice bath at that moment, but ultimately you're just trying to get cold, uh, cooler in some form or fashion. And yeah, correct. The, the next level of this is like when it gets kind of scary, when people are like, 
they don't know what planet they're on and they can get those chills. And I think all three of us have been a a part of, you know, medical tents with the marathon or whatever and seen this and it's pretty dramatic. And I don't think anybody listening to this, even on the general public would see this and think, no, this is not a big problem. We'll just throw some ice pack on it. So I would imagine that if you start to see those things, you're saying maybe call 911. And then if you can get them cooled down faster, that's a good time to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've already we've already said it a couple of times. Exertional heat stroke is a medical emergency, and the, the keys to successful treatment and 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 that is lowering the body temperature because you know at at these temperatures of 104 degrees, your your body can't recover from that without help, and so that's why you know we we talk talk about that and. You know, we start to see proteins breaking down at these high temperatures in the body. And I just say, every time I think of this, I think of, you know, the protein in an egg and what happens when you, when you put it in a hot pan, it starts to, you know, it starts to, to break those proteins down and then it changes physically. And that, that can happen in the body. It's not as extreme as a, as an egg cooking, but that's going to start then sending on this cascade that can turn bad really, really fast. And so it's very, very important to, to when this occurs to get their temperature down as quickly as possible. And, you know, when we're covering marathons or sports events and, and we know this, we have those ice tubs available. And sometimes I've been in scenarios where, you know, the, the person looked like they needed to go to the emergency room, but we knew that we could cool them down more quickly and more efficiently in this ice tub that we had access to than, than they could in an emergency room because they don't often have access to, to that. They're going to be packing in ice and blankets and that sort of a thing. And you mentioned you could potentially overcool somebody, but I think for, again, like if this was your cousin and they were calling you on the phone and they were concerned, you're just like, get them in something cold. And if they look terrible, call 911 and you're not going to overcool them in the amount of time that that's happening. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, the emergency response rates are, you know, great in this, the, the metro area that we're at. But, you know, if you get them in, you know, packed in ice or, you know, you throw a bunch of ice in the tub, fill it with water and that sort of thing, you're probably then activating, you know, 911. And by the time everybody gets there, they've probably cooled down to a sufficient degree that if, you know, if you send, send some ice or they have something like that in the ambulances, it's probably you know, they're probably going to be just fine where you're not going to cool them down too much or not worry about them heating back up on the way to the hospital. Yeah, that's a good point. It's kind of like when someone's down in front of you and you check for a pulse, you start CPR. If you're worried that someone's, you know, not making sense or not awake and it's 110 degrees outside and they're, they're looking like a mess, like get them cold now. And then, you know, while that's happening, you're calling 911. So start the treatment now if you can, because those are critical moments. I think we, we've we talked about the signs and symptoms previously, and you know one of the things that kind of stands out as I'm as I'm reading through and we are are looking at um, heat stroke is that you know typically these people they have an absence of sweating, you know their skin is dry, and and that's you know you know if you start to see somebody getting kind of kind of goofy and their their skin is hot and dry you know, that's a big deal. That's when you, you know, you want to move into action. Because that means no matter what they do, they can't cool themselves down. Like they need external help or that person could die. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, correct. It's also a really good example, Julie, of again, another one where like the first responder isn't always somebody with medical training. 
that the first responder is somebody who is a friend or a family or whoever's with this person and can make a difference and save a life because all they really need to do is get to a cool environment. And if you can do that, you can save, I mean, we'd have less deaths. So I, I just, I think that's a really excellent point for anybody listening is that you can make a big difference. If somebody shows these signs or symptoms that Dr. Blomgren's done a really good job of describing, that you can make a difference by cooling that person down um, and, and, and certainly starting care before you have clinicians starting care. Absolutely. Josh, you mentioned actually some pretty good resources. You mentioned some things with like the American Academy of Pediatrics um, with some recommendations. You talked about kind of how soccer makes their decisions. Like, do you have, are, are those publicly accessible? Do you have recommendations on where people can go? If I was somebody who, you know, had a youth baseball team and had a game and I just really wanted some guidance on like, is it too hot to play this game? Where would you kind of like send people? Yeah, I mean, so the American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines, I'm sure you could find that you know, that chart that it, it's a, it's a chart that has the, the different temperatures and kind of how you should handle it. Um, U.S. soccer has uh, some great resources, including their, their kind of heat illness program um, on their return to recover um, website. And then another great resource for heat illness and, you know, and other things kind of on field emergencies in the, in the world of, of sports is the Corey Stringer Institute at a, at a University of Connecticut. Corey Stringer was a football player with the Minnesota Vikings and, uh, he overheated at a, at a football, at a football training preseason, um, with the Vikings. And, you know, he ultimately went into multi-system organ failure and died. And so his family has, uh, you know, they tackled heat illness and then they've just kind of snowballed and they've tackled all these, these different, you know, emergencies that, that we as sports medicine physicians, um, you know, have the potential to see. And I think that their, their information is, is not only geared towards the medical professional, but is geared towards the general public as well. And so uh, would definitely recommend, you know, coaches and parents that are overseeing teams that are, that are competing in the hot environments to check that out. Julie, one of the things I read that I thought was interesting um, was that the heat in the South, especially for elderly people, has kind of become another pandemic where basically they have to like be isolated and stay by themselves. And I sort of thought the psychological aspects of that was interesting. It's not just like, okay, it's fine. You're not going to go outside because then you won't get sick and then you won't die. But like what that can do to a quality of life yeah. and, and and overall, we, we've already talked on other episodes about what loneliness can do to our general health. Absolutely. And isolation and lack of connection to your community. I mean, those are major social determinants of health. When you take them away from somebody, that's very difficult. And I think that that was a big thing that came out of the 1995 Chicago heat wave was a lot of the people that passed away were folks that were isolated in their homes and didn't have air conditioning. So it kind of spurred a lot of the communities to be like, check on your, mm, check on your neighbors, really check on your, point. yeah. You know, and, and so maybe just remind folks that when these major heat waves are happening, just to maybe, maybe reach out to your grandma, Midge, whatever grandma name they have. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, an ex- it's an excellent point that I don't think we've made at this point that, that, yeah. that, we, that checking on, especially elderly people or people who are vulnerable or, or, or have disabilities. Or have is, limited is, mobility or yes. may not have, or may have limited resources to have adequate climate control in their places. You know, um, I'm sure we can link to, and I'll link um, in the show notes, Josh, all the, um, the resources you provided. So thank you. But I'll also link to like, you know, if there's, more national databases or even Chicago databases for like cooling centers and such. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure the CDC has resources as well. Um, any other take home points, Josh, anything that you think that uh, you'd want somebody to know about this that we haven't covered? 
Uh, no, I don't. I mean, I think we, I think we did a good job of kind of highlighting the spectrum of things, the, the gravity of heat stroke, um, signs and symptoms of, of all the different phases and kind of how to, how to manage things. So. I want to ask Josh, how do we get an accurate core temperature, Josh? Oh, Julia, I knew you were going to ask this. Um, you know, the, the best the, the best way to get a core temperature is a rectal temperature. Um, I would, for the general public, I don't think that you're going to even think twice about this. You're just going to say, yeah, they're probably hot. We should cool them down. Um, and you're not going to, well, you're going to, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to mince numbers. And, you know, is it, is sure. it greater than 104, less than 104? <laughs> The reason I bring that up is because maybe there's someone who is doing something like the Shamrock Shuffle and it's very hot and they might be enjoy being forewarned that if we are concerned as the medical providers at that event that they may have exertional heat illness, we're going to tell them this is the way that we probably need to check your temperature. So just be forewarned. The, the, the best way to do it is, is a rectal temperature. You can't use the skin because they could have just come in from the sun and they're going to register hotter. I think this was probably highlighted during the pandemic when everybody was doing these ultra, these uh, infrared screens on people's temperatures. I remember doing physicals on a soccer team and it was probably 98 degrees temperature and, you know, in the, the low 100s heat index and just people walking from their car through the sun to get to me to do the physicals, everybody had a, had a fever. And then we had to take them inside and, 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 and re, recheck it. So that's not, not going to be valuable for our athletes. They may have been already s- sipping on some sort of icy drink. And so their mouth is going to register, you know, below. And so the core temperature, if we're worried about heat stroke, we need an accurate, accurate core temperature. And so if you're at a race, that's, that's exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. And in all seriousness, I mean, it's, it's a medical procedure that's being done to ensure the safety of that patient. Um, it's just uncomfortable Correct. and weird. And so I think some, I think our, our listeners might like to know, like, yeah, it might be something that could happen to you if, if that, uh, if that's the scenario that you're in at an event. So just, yeah. And, and further know. highlighting that the reason we're doing it is because exertional heat stroke is a medical emergency. And so it's, it's Agreed. part of that emergency care. So. Um, as unpleasant as it may be for anybody, um, it's in that situation necessary. Josh, one of the things we loved when we uh, about the podcast is we get to platform people who do excellent work that maybe are not, you know, being platformed or or have excellent work sure. that people hadn't heard of. So, if people wanted to learn more about you and, and look you up, where where would people find you? Yeah, you can uh, you can find my profile uh, on my practices website www.rushortho.com. Great. Or at a Red Stars can, game. Yeah, or you can see Josh on the sidelines at a Red Stars game. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be there. Women's soccer right now, all the rage, the, the Women's World Cup is is uh, is amazing and awesome. It, it, it is, and I was a little bit surprised because I was looking at all these photos, and I was like, why is everybody in puffy coats? And then I looked <laughs> it up, and it's, it's, it's 54 degrees in Australia and New Zealand right now, so... Um, they've got a very nice climate to be playing World Cup soccer in, um, which is very, very different than the last Men's World Cup where they played most of the games in uh, outdoor air-conditioned stadiums because it was in Qatar. Yeah, where they had to talk about heat illness a lot because of how Woof. 
hot every time. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. So with all of these episodes that we try to stay a little topical and, and, and get out important information to people during a time where something is affecting our health, uh, example being the air quality, and then again, hey, illness right now, I would encourage you that if you find this information helpful to share it with another person, if you have family and friends that live in the Southern Hemisphere, like send them the link, have them listen to the episode. I think that this is really tangible, easy information that really can make a huge difference. I mean, I think nobody should be dying from heat stroke if we can get to them and make them cool and and people had information and, and, and we decrease risk. So my call to action today is for everybody to share this with one person that they think would be beneficial. Anything to add, Julie? No, but I'm ready to wrap it up. Wrap it. All right. If you can't stand the heat, that is reasonable. It's too hot. Listen to your doctor friends. <laughs> The amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. Mm-hmm.